Good morning. We will get started with our Sunday school. If you all grab your uh, outline and head up to the front. We're continuing our series on the incarnation. Getting ready for Christmas. Um, and so we'll start with prayer. I'll continue what I've been doing. I'll, I'll read a prayer from the early church, uh, kind of meditating on Christmas. So let's pray together. How meek you are, Jesus, yet how mighty. Your judgment is mighty, but your love is sweet. Who can stand against you? If we seek who you really are, your true nature is hidden in heaven, in the essence of the mighty triune God. But if a person were to seek your face, they could have found you in the lap of Mary. Who can realize your depth, you who are a great sea that made itself so small? We come to see you as God and see you are a man. Or if we came to see you as a man, the light of your Godhead shone brightly. Who would believe that you are the heir of David's throne? From all his beds, you inherited an animal feeding trough. From his palaces, you received a cave, and instead of his chariots, a young donkey. How fearless you are, allowing everyone to carry you in their arms. You met all with a smile, making no distinction between family and stranger, between your mother and others. Was it your love, you who love all? What moved you to let everyone have you, the rich and the poor alike? How could you not return anger for anger, fear for threat? You are above returning injury for injury. Who are you, Jesus, that you loved us so much? In your name, amen. So we'll continue with incarnation. The previous two Sundays, we looked at Christ's divine nature, and then we looked at his human nature. And then this week, we're looking at the union of those two natures. So that was really purposeful. I was trying to set up. We, we know what the, uh, the deity of Christ is. We know what his humanity is. And now we're going to look at how he is deity and humanity in one person. And when we're talking about the personal union, that's our title, the personal union of Christ's two natures, the fancy theological term is hypostatic union. And hypostasis, of course, is just a Greek word for person. So it just means personal union. So that's what we're going to get into today. But first, I'll just briefly state the doctrine, because then we're going to look at scriptural evidence, and then we'll look at the doctrine more in depth. So basically, the doctrine of the personal union is that Jesus is God and man in one person. The God and the man are not united to each other. His two natures are not united to each other. His two natures are united to his one person. And he's not two persons with two different natures. He's one person, two natures, and the natures are united to his one person. So that's a very brief statement of the doctrine. And now we'll look at some scriptural evidence. We have seen the scriptural evidence for Christ's two natures in the past two weeks. So if you want more on that, you can probably watch those uh, lessons back. Um, but I'll just give you two, one for each nature, just to give you something. So John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. So the Word, who is Christ, was God. He is God. That's Christ's divine nature. And then his human nature we see in Hebrews 2, 17. It says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. A few verses earlier, it says that he had to take on flesh and blood, just like uh, his brothers had flesh and blood. So we can see he had to be truly human, but he was also truly God 
from the beginning. Uh, so we see those two natures in scripture in various places. Those are just two examples. But now we're going to spend more time on the scriptural evidence that Christ is one person with two natures. He wasn't a human person and a divine person separately. He was one person who was human and divine. And we can see that in a couple different ways in the New Testament especially. Uh, for example, the way that Jesus speaks about himself, uh, he only talks about himself as if he's one person. He, especially when he looks back before his incarnation, he presents himself as the same person uh, of the eternal Son of God. So you can see this in John 8, 58. Jesus is before the Jewish leaders, and uh, he just had said that Abraham saw his day and was glad. And the Jewish leaders say, well, you're not even 40 yet. How could Abraham see your day? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And so the human person of Jesus who is standing in flesh and blood before the Jews could point to the pre-incarnate Son of God and say, that's me. I existed before Abraham. It's the same person. It's the same uh, personal, you know, it's the same I that was standing before them and that existed before Abraham. And of course, uh, because Jesus didn't say before Abraham, I was, he said, I am. And so he's identifying himself with the great I am, Yahweh. And so there's one person who can identify as a human standing before the Jews, but also point to the great I am and say, that's me. Uh, we can also see this in John 17, 5. Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays to his father and says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So the same person that sat in the upper room and ate and drank with the disciples, a true human, could point to the eternal glory of God the Son and say, that's me. So we can see in the way that Jesus talks about himself that he, the human Jesus who you know, walked with his disciples, who ate and drank just like any other human, he identified himself. He said, I am God. I am the eternal son of God who existed before Abraham, who had glory with the father before even the world existed. We can also see this uh, in the way that the New Testament presents Jesus as the same person who is active in the Old Testament. For example, the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the creator of all things. He's the same person uh, who created the world. And so you can see this in John 1. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, in verse 14, is the same word who was God through whom all things were made, in 1.3. And so it's the same person. You could have pointed to the baby Jesus lying in a manger and said that is the creator of the universe. That's how united his two natures are to his one person. You could point to the baby Jesus and say, that is the creator of the universe. We can also see this uh, in the way that the New Testament portrays Jesus as active in the history of Israel. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, you must not put Christ to the test as the Israelites did. And so the same Christ that we must not put to the test is the one that Israel did put to the test. It's the same person. Also, Jude 4 and 5, the same Jesus that saved people out of Egypt is the Jesus who is our only master and Lord. It's the same person. 
active in the Old Testament, active in the New Testament. Same person of Jesus. There are a few passages that explicitly state that Christ is one. Christ is one. For example, 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. There's not two mediators. Um, there's one. 1 Corinthians 8.6, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's only one. Colossians 4, 4 to 5, there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Because it mentions the Father separately, uh, Lord almost certainly refers to Jesus. There's one Lord, one Jesus. And so this is a biblical foundation. We see that Christ has two natures according to Scripture. He is God and he is man. But we also see that he is one person in Scripture. He's the same person active in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the same person who has glory with the Father before all worlds and yet who lies in a manger as a helpless baby. That's what we see in Scripture. But now let's flesh out what this means. We're going to try to put a little bit of meat on the bones that we've just gotten from Scripture. Um, so the first thing that we see when we talk about the personal hypostatic union is the distinction between person and nature. I've been saying this already a lot. Christ is two natures in one person. So what does that mean? What is nature? What is person? For some, the distinction between those two terms is common sense. Uh, for others, it goes over our heads. It's kind of complicated to me. I'm not uh, super confident on it, so we're, we're not going to spend too much time on it. We're going to do our best, and I think we'll make some sense of it. Um, but it gets into some pretty complex philosophical stuff that we don't need to spend too much time on. But basically, nature is a word that describes a thing's whatness. The Latin word is quiddity, but just whatness. What is a thing? Um, I'm going to quote Louis Burkhoff, his systematic theology. Uh, it's very succinct and very accessible. Um, so hopefully that will help us understand what we're talking about here. Burkhoff says about nature, the term nature denotes the sum total of all the essential qualities of a thing, that which makes it what it is. In other words, nature concerns a person or thing's attributes or characteristics. So when we're talking about nature, we're, we're, we're talking about the divine nature, we're talking about his attributes. You know, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. Uh, we're talking about attributes. When we're talking about human nature, we're talking about the attributes of, you know, having a body, having a soul, having emotion, rationality, um, and a will. These are the kinds of things that we're talking about with nature. But person describes a thing's who-ness. Uh, who is this personal, uh, who is this thing that has a specific nature? Who is this uh, representation of a nature? Uh, Boethius was a early medieval philosopher and theologian. He famously gave one of the first definitions of the word person in relation to the Trinity. And he said that a person is an individual substance of rational nature. Kind of confusing, but an individual substance of a rational nature. Burkhoff, I think, helps to explain this. He says the term person denotes a complete substance endowed with reason and consequently a reasonable subject of its own actions. He, he goes on, a person is a nature with something added, namely independent subsistence, individuality. 
So a person is a nature with individual, individuality added to it. In other words, person concerns self-consciousness and moral action. A person is something that has a nature, but it's conscious of itself, it's individual, and it can be held accountable for its actions. It knows what it's doing, um, and it, it's morally responsible. So that's person, that's nature. And when we're talking about Christ's natures, we say that Christ is one person in two natures. That's the most succinct way to describe what happened in the incarnation. Jesus has one who and two what's. He has two sets of attributes. He has a divine set of attributes and a human set of attributes. And I think that's a helpful way to talk about it as a, as a set of attributes because errors come when you try to mix the sets, when you try to reconcile the divine and the human attributes to each other. We can't do that, and we'll see why in a little bit. We'll look at some, um, some Christological heresies in this regard. But Christ has two distinct sets of attributes, but he only has one person, one individual subsistence, one self-consciousness. In other words, the one person of the eternal Son of God who already possessed the fullness of the divine nature and was equal with the Father was united to a true human body and soul. So it was the eternal Son of God who became incarnate. That's what we're talking about with the incarnation. That's what we're talking about with the personal union. Um, and so two natures, one person. What are the two natures? We've already seen this. Christ is equal to the Father in deity and equal to us in humanity. And of course, if you want more on this, look at the previous two lessons. But that's what we're talking about with the, nature, with the natures of Christ. He's equal to the Father in deity, equal to us in humanity. The person of Christ. Christ has one person, and it's the person of the eternal Son of God. And that means that Christ did not have a human personhood. His human nature wasn't personal outside of the person of the eternal Son of God. The person who entered into the world as a baby in Bethlehem was the same person who created the world, revealed himself to Moses, to Abraham, etc. In other words, the person of Christ we see in the Old Testament is the same person of Christ we see incarnated in the New Testament. Uh, so, yeah, Christ obtained a human nature at his birth, but he did not obtain a human person. Uh, his personhood comes from the eternal Son of God. We can't speak of two persons. There aren't two who's in Christ, one before and one after. Rather, there's only one who, but he has two natures. It was the divine person of Christ who took on a human body and soul. Um, so the union, the actual union of Christ's two natures occurred in his incarnation. That's when the union happened. Prior to his incarnation, Jesus only existed as God. And after his incarnation, Jesus exists as God and man in one person. And there was no point in which Jesus only existed as a man. He existed as God before the incarnation and God and man after the incarnation. But he was never only a man. Uh, this happened when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary's womb and the virgin conceived the savior of the world. That, that's when the union of the two natures happened, when the eternal son of God took on human flesh. That's what happened on, uh, in the early chapters of Luke. We see this happening in the incarnation. 
It's called a personal union because the two natures are united to the one person. The, two, the natures are not united to each other. Uh, neither are there two persons with two natures who are united in some spiritual way. Rather, it's a union around the one person of Christ. The natures do not mix. They're not united to each other. They're united to the person. The union means that Jesus had all the same attributes divine attributes as a father and all the same human attributes as us but again these attributes don't mix they don't change each other and that means that Christ is everywhere present in his divine nature but in his human nature he's localized he's all knowing in his divine nature but in his human nature he has finite knowledge in other words Christ's divinity is infinite but his humanity is finite when God became man, his infinite divine nature didn't change to become finite. And his finite human nature did not become infinite in any way. He had both infinity and, and uh, finiteness in one person, but they weren't, they didn't affect each other, they didn't change each other or mix together. And of course, this is beyond human comprehension. We're treading in deep water this, the doctrine of Christ's personal union of two natures is a mystery of Christian doctrine on par with the Trinity. If you could understand how God can be three persons in one essence, then you could understand how Christ can be one person with two essences. They're both beyond our understanding. We can only know and confess that this is true, but we can't describe how it is true. And analogies don't help us here. Just like in the Trinity, when you try to make analogies, you know, you, you, the three-leaf uh, clover thing, uh, water, ice, gas, they don't help. They actually lead you down the wrong direction. It's the same with the Incarnation. I don't think that there are any helpful analogies because this is a unique thing. The Trinity is absolutely unique. There's nothing like it. Same with the Incarnation. There's no, nothing you can compare it to. It's absolutely unique. Venturing into the how of mysteries gets us into trouble, and we'll see this in a little bit when we look at um, some heresies or errors. Whenever you try to explain the how of a mystery, you run into rationalism, and rationalism is when you try to explain with human reason something that cannot be explained with human reason. You're trying to obtain knowledge that God has not revealed to us. That's what rationalism does. But instead of rationalism, we should follow Anselm's slogan. Anselm was a medieval theologian. He wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, which we'll read a quote from later, um, Why the God-Man. And Anselm famously said that his project was faith-seeking understanding. He said, I don't understand in order to believe, but I believe so that I can understand. And that's what we ought to do instead of being uh, rational in terms of rationalism, we ought to start with faith. That's our foundation. We believe because God has revealed it to us, but we don't have to leave it there and never think about it again. We can continue to understand and grow deeper in our, in our understanding of what we have faith in. So faith-seeking understanding. And one source that helps our faith to understand Scripture is the definition of Chalcedon, especially in regard to this incarnation, this personal union. So we're going to look at the definition of Chalcedon briefly because this helps our faith to seek understanding. The Council of Chalcedon was called in 451 AD. 
Uh, and it was called to address some Christological heresies that we'll look at in a bit, namely Nestorianism and Eutychianism. Uh, Chalcedon, most of what it did was just to affirm what previous councils had already done. So the Council of Nicaea, of uh, Constantinople and Ephesus, it basically said what they said about Christ is true, but they also gave this document uh, to help define what we mean when we talk about Christ's nature. It helps to interpret scripture and to interpret even the Nicene Creed. Uh, what do we confess with the Nicene Creed? What do we read in scripture? This helps us to set boundaries. It doesn't really say anything positively about Christ's incarnation. It more gives us negative boundaries. What can, what can you not say <laughs> about Christ's incarnation? That's what this does for us. And the most important part of the definition of Chalcedon is four words or four adverbs. It says that the one person of Christ is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. So these are the four words that are the most important part of the definition. The first two words protect the integrity of the two natures of Christ. So without confusion or inconfusedly, it just means that Christ's two natures didn't mix with each other, that there was no blurring of the divine and human nature. It's not like a Venn diagram or anything like that. Uh, without change is kind of getting at a similar thing. The human nature didn't become sub subhuman, and the divine nature was not changed into anything less than true deity. He remained equal to the Father in his deity and equal to us in humanity in his incarnation. That's what these two words are telling us. That didn't change. His, his equality with the Father did not change. His equality with us did not change. These two words, uh, without confusion, without change, guard against heresies that emphasize the unity of Christ's two natures at the expense of the distinction of the two natures. The second two words that I've, I've read protect the unity of Christ's natures. So without division or separation, they're getting at the same thing. Without division and separation means that Christ's human and divine nature cannot be divided or separated from his one person. So you can't make them two persons. You can't do anything like that. You have to keep them united to his one person. These two words, without division, without separation, guard against heresies that emphasize the distinction of Christ's two natures at the expense of his unity. And, and we'll look at these heresies in a bit. Uh, this language from the definition of Chalcedon is reflected in our Reformed confessions and catechisms. For example, I'll read Westminster Confession 8.2. Uh, it says, The Son of God took upon himself man's nature so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? And I'm just reading this to point out that the definition of Chalcedon, of Chalcedon has been accepted by our tradition, our Reformed theology. Um, it's something that we have, we have accepted as being helpful and being uh, a helpful definition to 
understand Christ's natures. And you can see that in what I just read. It says in the Westminster Confession that the two natures are inseparably joined. That was one of the words I gave you, right? Uh, without separation. And it also says without conversion, composition, or confusion. You get the same, uh, same word right there, without confusion. And that both inseparably and without confusion, those both kind of get at the two ideas that each of those sets of words were getting at. Um, and so we see it in our Reformed Confessions. We see it in the uh, definition of Chalcedon. Uh, the definition ends with the following words, and I think this will help us um, as we continue to think about uh, rationalism versus faith-seeking understanding. The definition ends by saying, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. And so that's exactly right. I, I read a lot beforehand, just to kind of give you the rest of what the definition said. But what I really wanted you to hear was that the definition is saying, this is what scripture says. This is what the prophets said from the beginning and what Jesus taught us. Je what Jesus taught us, you know, in the gospels, but also through his apostles in the epistles. This is what we see in scripture. And that's what the definition is, is founded on. It's founded on scripture. And so this is exactly right. We can only know the doctrine of the incarnation. We can only know the doctrine of the personal union of Christ from the Bible. The definition is exactly right. We cannot rationalize it. We cannot, uh, we, nobody could understand the incarnation if they were just sitting by themselves without a Bible, uh, trying to understand the world, philosophizing. Uh, you cannot rationalize yourself to the incarnation. You can't get there just on human reason alone. And you can't explain it through human reason alone. When you do that, you fall into the following Christological heresies. And the, these that we're going to look at now, the relevant Christological heresies, these are errors that you fall into when you fail to do what the Council of Chalcedon just said. You fail to, to found your doctrine of the incarnation in what the prophets say and what Christ has taught us. So there are two errors uh, that you can make. There are two ways that you could err with Christ's personal union. You could overemphasize the distinction of Christ's two natures at the expense of the unity, or you could overemphasize the unity of Christ's two natures at the expense of the distinction. And we'll start with the first. Too much distinction uh, would be Nestorianism. Nestorianism concludes that there are two persons of Christ. Uh, Nestorius was the, was, was the fourth century bishop of Constantinople, uh, very significant figure in the church. He's an archbishop, uh, and he famously did not want to call Mary the God-bearer. He wanted to call Mary the Christ-bearer. He was uncomfortable with saying that Mary bore God. It's not clear if Nestorius actually taught this or not, but the heresy that bears his name says that Christ is two persons with two natures. It's debated whether he actually taught this, but this is what uh, his name has been attached to. 
And so Mary did not give birth to a human, uh, sorry, Mary gave birth to a human person, but not a divine person with a human nature. Christ is divine and human, but not united to one person. He's two persons, two Christs with two natures. Uh, instead of one mediator, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, there are two mediators, according to Nestorianism. So that's the first category of error, too much distinction. The next is too much unity. And the first that we see here is Eutychianism. This is probably the farthest direction that you could go in terms of too much unity. Eutychianism makes the opposite error of Nestorianism to the point that it says Christ only had one nature. Eutychus was a 5th century monk in Constantinople, and he was actually responding directly to Nestorianism. Uh, this is also called monophysitism, which just means one natureism. So one nature, mono, one physis, nature. So this heresy claims that Christ's human nature was so absorbed into the divine nature that only the divine nature was left. He only had one nature. It was a mix between human and divine. There's not two natures in one person, but one nature in one person. It's a divine human mix in one person, according to Eutychianism. The next is monothelitism. It's a similar error, but it doesn't go quite as far. This comes from the Greek meaning one will. So one will. So the heresy doesn't mix the entire divine and human nature, but it does mix the divine and human will. Or rather, it says that Christ only had one will. He didn't have a human will. He only had a divine will. And so he, he, he's not, you, you couldn't say that he's like us in every way. He doesn't have a human will like we do. Uh, ubiquitarianism is the next error. I wouldn't call this quite a heresy just because this is the view of our Lutheran brothers and sisters, and I don't know if I could call it a heresy. I could definitely call it a very strong error, um, and it has a lot of implications. And, and in fact, it seems quite a lot like Eutychianism when you get into it, um, but... The, the famous, uh, not famous, but my professor says that the big uh, beef that we have with each other between Presbyterians and Lutherans is that Lutherans call us Nestorians. They say, you have two persons of Christ, and we call them Eutychians, saying that they mix the nature so that he only has one nature. It's a pretty accurate distinction between, uh, or rather, it's a pretty accurate way of describing our disagreement with each other, but... I wouldn't quite call them uh, heretics. But basically, ubiquitarianism is Latin. It means everywhere present. And of course, we would say that Jesus is everywhere present, but in his divine nature, he's everywhere present. But Lutherans, with their ubiquitarianism, they say that his human nature is also everywhere present. Uh, Luther did not teach this view exactly. He kind of taught views that maybe led to this, um, especially his view of the supper, but Lutherans after him kind of took this up and went really far with it. And so with their view of the supper, they claim that when we take uh, communion, that Jesus' body and blood are in, with, and under the bread and the wine that we uh, eat and drink. And so in order for that to happen in more than one church at a time on a Sunday, right, Jesus needs to be in more than one place at a time in his human nature. And so they say that Jesus is everywhere as a human. Um, that, that just, 
doesn't really make sense. How can how can a localized person, you know, we, we are very localized. I can't be in more than one place at once as a human. How could Jesus, unless he's anything less than human? Um, he's no longer like us if he, can, if he can be everywhere at once as a human. Uh, the next is canonicism. This does something similar, but it actually does it in the opposite direction. So the previous three errors um, kind of, they, they make... They make a mix of the two natures, but kind of leaving the humanity behind a little bit. Canonicism does the opposite. It comes from the Greek word empty or emptied uh, in uh, Philippians 2, 7, where it says Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, uh, becoming, uh, uh, taking on the likeness of man. Uh, So canonicism says that Jesus emptied himself of certain divine attributes when he was incarnated. They wouldn't say he laid aside all divine attributes, but he did lay aside the infinite divine attributes. So they would say when Christ was incarnated, he gave up his being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. And so we have a Jesus who's human and he's God, but somehow he lost part of his divine nature part of his attributes. Some say that he took them back when he was resurrected or when he ascended into heaven, um, but this is what they say. They say he lost, or will, I guess willingly gave up, but he gave up some divine attributes. And so now to briefly respond to these errors, all of these errors are addressed by the definition of Chalcedon in some way or another. The, the definition actually was written to directly address Nestorianism and Eutychianism, um, and it does so with those four key words that we looked at earlier, right? Without confusion, without change, rejects Eutychianism. There's no mix of the natures. There's no change between the natures. Without division, without separation, rejects Nestorianism. You can't divide the two natures into two persons like Nestorianism does. Um, those are directly uh, addressed by the, count the, the, the Chalcedonian definition. But the other errors are also uh, rejected by the, the, the four words. Monothelitism, ubiquitarianism, and canonicism are also rejected by without confusion and without change because they change Christ's divine or human nature in some way. All of these errors fail to acknowledge Christ as one person and two natures with two distinct sets of attributes. They either want to separate his attributes into two different persons, or they want to unite them into one set of attributes. All of these errors have the same, uh, or or have, have serious implications on Christ's role as mediator. If his human nature was made divine, as in Eutychianism, monothelitism, and ubiquitarianism, then Christ is not like us in every way. If he is everywhere present, he's not like us. If he doesn't have a human will, he's not like us. If his human nature is mixed with the divine nature, he's not like us. And if he wasn't made like us, then he can't heal our nature. He can't sympathize with us. He didn't go through all of the same things that we went through. He didn't suffer like we do and was tempted like we are If he didn't have a human will, again, he could not have healed our human will. 
If Christ's divine nature was humanized, like canonicism says, then there are serious effects on our theology. Canonicism means God can change. He can shed off certain attributes. If the Son can empty himself of certain attributes in the Incarnation, why couldn't the Father and the Spirit do the same? If the Son emptied himself of omnipotence and omnipresence, then did he stop upholding the universe by the word of his power, like Hebrews 1.3 says? Was it only the Father and the Spirit upholding the universe? Is there some hypothetical situation in which no one is upholding the universe because all three persons of the Trinity empty themselves of their divine attributes? Uh, rather, to contradict canonicism, Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. With all of these heresies, especially Nestorianism, Christ could no longer stand before the Jews and point to the great I am and say, that's me. There's some separation that occurs between Christ and the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they all stem from the same error of trying to overly rationalize Christ's incarnation. In some way, all of these errors, uh, all of these heresies make Christ less than the infinite God and finite man in one person. They want to uh, reconcile the finite to the infinite in some way. And they try to rationalize it. And, and of course, it's mind-blowing that Christ can be infinite and finite in one person, but that's what Scripture tells us. That that's what we've seen in Scripture. That's what we've seen uh, the church confessing throughout the ages. When you try to reconcile the finite with the infinite, you start to go down the road of these heresies. And so we need to stick with, to what Scripture says about Jesus, especially because it's not for no reason. Uh, Jesus did what he did, and Scripture says what it says because it's important that Jesus is God and man in one person. It's important to our salvation that this was how Jesus became incarnate. And so we'll close by looking at the significance of Christ's personal union, the significance of getting this doctrine right. It's a really complex doctrine. It's really kind of in the weeds theologically, but why is it so important to talk about such deep and difficult doctrines? We're gonna ask this question, why did our savior need to be God and man in one person? And our catechism asks this question and gives us an answer. So Westminster Larger Catechism 40, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator, who is to reconcile God and man, should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. In other words, it's not only biblically accurate to say that there is one mediator who is both true God and true man, but it was necessary for our salvation that this was true. It was necessary for our salvation that Christ be both God and man in one person. Christ, uh, we've seen this in the past weeks, but I'll reiterate, Christ had to be human so that he could be our priest, our representative to God who is like us, who's chosen from among us to represent us to God, our priest who can sympathize with us and heal our nature. Our Savior had to be human in order to die on behalf of humans, uh, uh, to suffer as in our, our atonement and to pay our debt. We'll see this in a little bit in one of our quotations. But the debt we owe God 
uh, because of our sin must be paid by a human for humans because it's humans who incurred the debt, but it's a debt that's far greater than any human could pay. Psalm 49 says, truly no man can ransom another. Therefore, our Savior also had to be God in order to give worth and efficacy to his sufferings and to bear the eternal wrath of God. These benefits would not have occurred if he was not God and man in one person. If he was just God and man in two persons, this would not have worked. Two mediators could not have saved us. We need a single mediator who has the benefits and abilities of both natures. In other words, plenty of people were crucified. Thousands upon thousands of people were crucified. What would have made Christ's crucifixion any different if he wasn't truly God? Uh, there were plenty of prophets before Jesus was born who, who revealed the will of God. What would have been special about Christ's teaching if he wasn't truly God, if he was just a man? He would have been like any other prophet. He would have been like any other person who was crucified by Rome. But what a wonder that our mediator is truly infinite God and finite man. The one who reconciles us to God is like us in every way and yet without sin. And he is himself God. He can sympathize with us because he is man, but we can have full assurance that he is able to reconcile us to God because he is God. We can have assurance of our salvation because our Savior is God himself. It's difficult to capture the beauty of Christ's incarnation. So I'll close by quoting a few theologians who have gotten a lot closer than I have. And so this is how we'll close. I'll first start with a quote from Athanasius. And he's kind of talking about what I'm talking about here, the significance of Christ's deity and manhood in one person. Uh, Athanasius, uh, I believe a, a fourth century bishop and theologian, he wrote this in his book On the Incarnation. For the word realizing that no other way could the corruption of human beings be undone except by dying, yet being immortal and the son of the father, the word was not able to die. For this reason, he takes to himself a body capable of death in order that it, participating in the word who is above all, might be sufficient for death on behalf of all, and through the indwelling word would remain incorruptible, and so corruption might henceforth cease from all by the grace of the resurrection. And so we see Christ, our Savior, had to die, but he couldn't die because he was truly God, so he had to become true man also so that he could die. Uh, we see from Anselm in his book, Why the God-Man, this is the Anselm that said, faith-seeking understanding. This is kind of a summary of his argument. He says, the restoring of mankind ought not to take place and could not unless man paid the debt which he owed for his sin. And this debt was so great that while none but man must pay the debt, none but God was able to do it. And so that he who does it must be both God and man. And hence arises a necessity that God should take man into unity with his own person, so that he who in his own nature was bound to pay the debt but could not might be able to do it in the person of God. Of course, he's making that point that I was trying to make earlier, that our mediator had to pay our debt as a human, but he couldn't pay the debt unless he was God. And so he had to be God and man in one person. 
And of course, our favorite theologian as Presbyterians, John Calvin, says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Here we can see how he is keeping the two natures distinct, but uniting them to the one person. Christ is localized. He's walking about on earth as a human, but as, a, as God, he is still filling the world, even as he had done from the beginning. He didn't change in his divine nature. And so this, is, this has been our lesson. That's, that's kind of where I'll end it. Um, the personal union of Christ's two natures left just enough time for no questions. So please... <laughs> Uh, maybe talk to me afterwards. I'll try to do what I can. This is a complex uh, doctrine, but thank you for hanging in with me. The next lesson that I'll teach won't be next week. Next week, we're having our Christmas Eve reception during the Sunday school hour, but two weeks from now, I'll finish this series, um, and I'll spend some time on Hebrews 2. That uh, uh, Pastor Tim suggested this. I talked about this passage two weeks ago, or last week, I think. We'll spend some more time on it. I think it'll be really cool. So... I'll see you there.